One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze. Relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm Dom Nichols, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, we bring you updates from the front line. Yevgeny Prigozhin breaks his silence, and we hear why a global food giant that prides itself on its social purpose has been named an international sponsor of war by the Ukrainian government. Bravery takes you through the most unimaginable hardships to finally reward you with victory. We need a military strategy for Ukraine to gain a decisive advantage on the battlefield to win the war. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday, we sit down with leading journalists from The Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Tuesday, the 4th of July, one year and 130 days since the full-scale invasion began. And today, I'm joined by Assistant Comment Editor Francis Durnley and Senior Business Reporter Daniel Wolfson. I started with the latest updates from Ukraine. Now, there's been another drone attack on Moscow. A military unit near the city was among a number of areas attacked by drones in the early hours of today. Various reports coming out of the country suggesting. So Baza, a telegram channel closely linked to Russia's FSB, the security service. They said an administrative building in a military unit in Kubinka, which is just on the outskirts of Moscow, was attacked around 4am this morning. No casualties reported there. Uh, Russian MOD saying that, well, they're blaming Kiev. Uh, they're saying that Kiev had launched five drones uh, at Moscow and the surrounding region. There's been no response uh, so far from Ukrainian authorities. Now, Moscow's uh, Vernukovo airport was temporarily closed and only resumed operations at 8am local time. Russia's aviation watchdog Ross Aviatsia uh, reported that. They said airport operations were restricted this morning for, quote, technical reasons beyond the control of the airport, which I guess is a new euphemism for a drone strike. Now, elsewhere, shelling in Ukraine. Shelling has killed civilians in Hezon City. This is coming out of the local prosecutor's office. They said that this morning. And a Russian drone attack in the city of Sumy. We reported other strikes yesterday. So this is the northeast of the country. So due east, a couple of hundred uh, k's due east of uh, Kiev to the northwest of Kharkiv, the city of Sumy. 
A drone attack there has hit a, um, well, President Zelensky said it's hit a National Security Service building and residential buildings. There are reports of casualties, no numbers, though. That was reported, or rather President Zelensky referred to that in his nightly address last night. Uh, Mr Zelensky said Ukraine did not currently have enough, what he says, quote, high quality air defence systems to protect our entire country and shoot down all enemy targets. Okay, next, Alexei Danilov, who's the head of Ukraine's National Security and Defense Council. Uh, he's described the last few days as particularly fruitful for the country's military offensive. He said Ukraine's forces are fulfilling the number one task, in his words, that he describes as the maximum destruction of manpower equipment, fuel depots, military vehicles, command posts, artillery and air defense forces of the Russian army. So I think it basically means the Russian armed forces. He said, uh, now the war of destruction is equal to the war of kilometres. More destroyed means more liberated. The more effective the former, the more the latter. We are acting calmly, wisely, step by step. Ukraine's Deputy Defence Minister, Hala Malia, she also uh, was saying, yes, he was giving reports about efforts, saying they are they are pushing on the southwest flank of Bakhmut in particular. I think um, a bit of ground taken there yesterday. The question here is, as we said weeks ago, or months ago actually, we were saying that Russian forces were moving forward at just hundreds of metres a day at great cost. And then after a while, we, we were correctly reporting all these hundreds of metres, they do add up. So it's the same thing here in reverse. I think Ukraine is advancing much faster than that. Of course, the question is, at what cost? Now, we know that Russia was advancing at huge cost in personnel and equipment. I don't think Ukraine would be accepting those kind of losses. So they must be content to accept the toll that this advance is taking. I think we're still very early in this in the counteroffensive. We don't think the, anything like the majority of the suspected nine new brigades, those brigades with mainly Western equipment, we don't think they're on the battlefield yet. There have been some, obviously. We've seen some Leopards and US Bradley infantry fighting vehicles knocked out, but we don't think the majority are there are there yet. And I think it's going to be another couple of weeks at least, really, until Ukraine takes stock and decides whether or not the cost in personnel and equipment uh, for the tactics they're using right now are worth it. And they might say that, yes, it is, and, and carry on. Or they might deem that it's too, uh, it's too costly and try something else. But I think it's far too early for us to say, oh, it's failed, oh, it's working, anything like that. It is what it is at the moment, and we try and give the most accurate uh, source reporting that we can. Now, next, uh, today's British Defence Intelligence update said that Russia has prioritised and refined tactics aimed at slowing the counteroffensive in recent weeks, and in particular their use or their very heavy use of anti-tank mines. So in the latest Defence Intelligence update, uh, the MOD, Britain's MOD, said having slowed the Ukrainian advance, Russia has then attempted to strike Ukrainian armoured vehicles with one-way attack Uncrewed aerial vehicles, that's their phrase that the rest of us call kamikaze drones, um, attack helicopters and artillery. The MOD said that Moscow had achieved some success but continued to suffer from key weaknesses, especially overstretched units and a shortage of artillery munitions. So I think that's that kind of chimes with what we've been saying for the last few days, that yes, it's a hell of a fight going on. And of course, neither side has air superiority or can even really achieve local air superiority. So that's being able to in the bubble of sky for a short period of time to give you a measure of uh, freedom of manoeuvre underneath it. But without control of the sky, it's a real tough fight, as we're seeing. 
Now then, to NATO. First, Jens Stoltenberg is going to be extended in post. Uh, more from Francis on that in a moment. I did say on the Defence In-Depth video two, three weeks ago, two weeks ago, when we were looking at the NATO runners and riders, I did have a tenor. I did say if I found a tenor under Roland Oliphant's desk, I'd stick it on Jens Stoltenberg being extended. So if anybody wants to take me up on that retrospectively, um, I've won a tenor. But secondly, a senior NATO military official has said that the West will not supply Ukraine with fighter jets until the counteroffensive has concluded. Now, there's a little bit, little bit of nuance here we need to discuss. This is Admiral Rob Bauer. He's the chair of NATO's military committee. He was speaking on the broadcast at LBC. He said, training those pilots, training the technicians, making sure there is a logistic organisation that can actually sustain these aircraft will not be available before this counteroffensive is over. Now, I don't think that's a comment on not wanting to supply jets. NATO could not offer that opinion because that's a national decision. I also don't think it's a suggestion NATO or any countries are waiting to see if the counteroffensive is successful or not. I think it is a statement and a comment on the practicality of how long it takes to train pilots and ground crew and, and so on. I wouldn't be surprised if there was an announcement next week at the NATO conference in Lithuania about uh, jets, F-16s in particular. But I don't, on the face of it, there's some commentary out there saying, oh, NATO's not you know, waiting to wait to see. They're not going to supply the jets for the counteroffensive. They just wouldn't get there in time. Well, they're not going to be there for months. And depending how long you think this counteroffensive goes on for and when it just becomes an offensive. Uh, so I don't take that as a critical statement from NATO about uh, Ukraine's efforts. But you'll see that kind of comment out there. And finally, there's a report I pointed to in Forbes magazine. It says the Ukrainian army has begun recovering some of the roughly 25 Western-made tanks and another infantry fighting vehicles, engineering vehicles and what have you, that it lost whilst trying to cross the minefield south of uh, Mala Tokmachka on June the 8th. So right at the start of the this counteroffensive. So about, we're about 40 k southeast of Zaporizhia now. You'll remember those uh, images of Bradley infantry fighting vehicles and leopard tanks that were knocked out. So that's where we're, that's where we're talking about now. Those images, you'll remember, have been repurposed many, many times by uh, Russian sites claiming that there's lots of Western tanks been knocked out. It's the same action, different photographs from different angles. So be very careful with that. But um, Forbes is saying the video, which was posted by a Ukrainian engineering crew on social media on Saturday. It shows they've advanced far enough along that access down through uh, um, Robotine towards Topmac. Uh, they've advanced far enough that it's safe to, for recovery teams to work. Now, I spoke yesterday about uh, Robotine, uh, which is about 10k south from where they started the counteroffensive, and we think that's the first of two main Russian lines of defences. It's about 10, 15 k's north of Tokmak, the very logistically important town of Tokmak, uh, and just to the north of that town is, we think, the second line, the the most extensive line of engineered uh, defences. But yeah, so the, it looks like they are now recovering some of those vehicles. Of course, if they've just lost tracks, if they've hit a mine and the track's been blown off and the, the running gear and what have you, then those can be uh, relatively easily repaired. If they are totally trashed, then of course it's, it, there's no worth picking them up. So if they're making that effort, then they must feel that they are worth recovering. Now then, Francis, over to you, please. You've got a bit on uh, NATO and also... Uh, you've got some news, I think, from the uh, Russian 2023 hide-and-seek champion Yevgeny Prigozhin. 
Indeed, Tom. But actually, I'm going to start with a confirmation of the news we speculated about last week, namely that NATO has decided to extend Jens Stoltenberg's contract by a further year, opting to stick with an experienced secretary general rather than try to agree on a successor. Ukrainian Foreign Minister Dmitry Kuleba has welcomed this development, tweeting in the past hour or so, excellent news on the extension of Jens Stoltenberg's mandate as NATO secretary general. Tough times demand strong leadership. Jens Stoltenberg has demonstrated just that. I look forward to furthering our cooperation. Now, as I discussed last week, behind the scenes, there was obvious disagreement within the alliance over who should succeed Mr Stoltenberg. Early favourite Ben Wallace, Britain's Defence Secretary, appears to have been shot down by the French, who believe that should be a leader within the European Union. Stoltenberg, a former Prime Minister of Norway, of course, will now be there until October 2024, after his tenure had already been extended three previous times. Whether or not there will be yet another extension will depend, I imagine, on when and how this war ends, because it does seem that the two are now closely aligned. But staying with NATO... Lithuanian President Gitanus Kosita has urged NATO members to be bolder in addressing Ukraine's push for membership in a summit in Vilnius next week. He said in an interview with Reuters that stronger wording on Ukraine's membership would increase the fighting spirit of Ukrainian soldiers on the battlefield. I'll read the rest of the quote in full because it's quite interesting. He said, we should not hesitate to take bolder decisions because otherwise the Putin regime will decide that the Western allies are too weak, that they should be pushed to the corner and they will surrender. We have some countries which are cautious about the stronger wording on Ukraine's perspective, but I already see some shift in the minds of their leaders. We all understand that right now in the midst of war, Ukraine is not able to join NATO immediately, but we need to create procedures how to proceed. So there is no wasting of time if the war is over and victory is on the Ukrainian side. Evidently, Ukraine's path to NATO membership remains one of the fault lines within the alliance, with some countries favouring a clear pathway that makes it obvious to Moscow there is no way back, that Ukraine is, in essence, lost forever. Others fear making any commitments which could hamper the peace process or provoke Moscow. Now, quite why, even at this stage, there remain fears about upsetting Russia is one that no doubt many listeners will be thinking. But I think part of the reason for that is often we're not battling with reason, but with culture, with deeply ingrained temperament and emotion within certain countries. And these are forces that remain defining ones of political decision making in Europe, however much we might like to see ourselves as products of the Enlightenment. Uh, but enough on that for now. We are at last hearing Putin's pitch to Asia following the humiliating mutiny of the Wagner Group. In, and it's his first appearance in an international forum since the uprising. It's a virtual summit of the Shanghai Cooperation Organization featuring China and India. And we hear that he told them, apparently in all earnestness, that the Russian people were more united than ever. So the quote is, the Russian people are consolidated as never before. Russian political circles and the whole of society clearly demonstrated their unity an elevated sense of responsibility for the fate of the fatherland when they responded as a united front against an attempted armed mutiny. He then went on and thanked allied countries for their support during the mutiny and uh, is evidently trying to reassert some semblance of authority and stability to his leadership. He added that Russia would stand up against Western sanctions 
transactions and provocations, his term, and supported any transition to settlements in local currencies in foreign trade, something again clearly designed to try and impede Western sanctions. So that's the response to from Putin to the mutiny at this point. But what about Prigozhin? Well, we have now heard from him, as you say, Dom. He has reportedly recorded an audio message for the first time since arriving in Belarus, telling supporters that they will see victories on the front line in the nearest future via a Russian pro-war telegram channel. I'll read it in full. So today we need your support like never before. Thank you for this. I want you to understand our march for justice was aimed at the fight against traitors and mobilisation of our society. And I think that we achieved a lot of this. In the nearest future, I'm sure you will see our victories on the front line. Thanks, guys. Now, he didn't say anything about his whereabouts or his future plans, but regardless, these remarks are interesting. They hardly resemble a climb down. There's no semblance of humility. If I were Putin, I would read these remarks and seethe, quite frankly, for... As long as he has a platform, it's increasingly clear Prigozhin is going to be critiquing from the sidelines, a politically fortuitous place to be if Russia's standing in this war continues to decline. I increasingly see him as a politician out in the wilderness rather than as a spent force, but we shall see. Now, staying with Russia, a rather concerning story, and I always want to try and draw attention to these when they occur, and they are unfortunately becoming increasingly frequent. A prominent Russian journalist and a lawyer were attacked after several masked men in the Russian region of Chechnya forced their car to stop. They were left with serious injuries, according to the journalist's employer and rights groups. Yelena Milashina of Novoya Gazeta, which has lost its license in Russia, was travelling to the Chechen capital Grozny from the local airport with a lawyer, Alexander Nimov. The pair had planned to attend a court hearing, but are now in hospital in the capital following an attack in which she had her head shaved. Several of her fingers were broken and she was covered in green dye. Apparently, she lost consciousness several times. That's coming straight from the rights group Memorial group, of course, we've spoken about many times. They've said in a statement they were brutally kicked, including in the face, threatened with death, had a gun held to their heads and had their equipment taken away and smashed. While being beaten, they were told, you have been warned, get out of here and don't write anything. There's been no immediate comment from authorities in Chechnya. Further evidence, if any, were needed of the hostile environments journalists encounter when reporting in and on Russia, something that has become even more dangerous since the full-scale invasion. Now, lastly, two brief stories from within Ukraine itself. Ukrainian authorities have charged a former top security official with treason. That's coming out of the domestic intelligence agency. Ola Kolenik, former head of the security service of Ukraine's Crimea directorate, was arrested last July on accusations of recruiting other Russian-friendly operatives on orders from Moscow. He faces up to 15 years in prison if he is convicted. The current head of Ukraine's security service, who oversaw the operation to detain him, said this is a clear signal to all those who work for the enemy. The SBU will definitely find you and make you answer for what you have done. Kulenik has not been reached for comment, I should stress. The other story is that the first working meeting has taken place between Ukrainian prosecutors at the new International Centre for the Prosecution of the Crime of Aggression. That's the ICPA in The Hague. That's coming from Kyiv's Prosecutor General. This new group opened on Monday and features prosecutors from Ukraine, the European Union, United States and the International Criminal Court, the ICC, as they investigate Russia over the full-scale invasion. Andrei Kostin, Prosecutor General, has written on Twitter... 
First, working meeting, defining the scope of work and key priorities. The strategic goal is the accountability of Russia's political and military leadership. This is history in the making. We're laying the groundwork for the future tribunal. But the question is, will we ever see one? And that, I think, depends on the outcome of the war and the political willpower of the West to see this through. Imagine if the war were to end suddenly tomorrow with some kind of negotiated peace. Despite everything, I think the instinct of some countries would be to try and restore ties with Moscow. The issue of the persecution of war crimes, however, arguably nullifies that. For one would be seeking to extend a hand to wanted war criminals. And as such, one could argue that this is not just a moral cause, this tribunal, but a political one, which could see Putin's kleptocracy permanently severed from the international political fraternity that they used to inhabit. That will naturally lead them to pivot to China, India and others, something we're already seeing, of course. And the great outstanding question has to be in that context whether those countries will be allowed to do that without consequence. As we've said many times, this is not just a war fought on the battlefield, but in boardrooms. One affects the other. And on the political and economic front, Russia is not yet suffering enough to trigger untransformative change. It is not fertile for a revolt within Putin's elite, nor among the people. Until that changes, Putin will be willing to play for time in the hope that something changes internationally in his favour, especially, of course, in the United States. We've been speculating for months now about the various questions surrounding this war. Who will blink first was one I posed in the earliest episode of the year. And to me, it still remains the critical question in determining the outcome of this war. And it's one that we haven't yet got a clear answer to. Lovely. Thanks, Francis. Interesting stuff there, especially the bit you were saying about uh, those that might be looking for residual ties with Moscow after the war. And on that note, it's a real pleasure now to introduce to Ukraine the latest uh, senior business reporter, Daniel Wolfson. Now, Daniel, you've got a fascinating piece uh, coming out of business today, looking at how companies are navigating the new business landscape, if I can put it like that, of trading with Russia. Uh, you've got a report on how a household name, I'll let you introduce them, household name has apparently fallen foul of the Ukrainian authorities. Please tell us more. Thanks, Dom. So this story is about Unilever. And Unilever is the international corporate food giant. Uh, It's the owner of Marmite, the owner of Hellman's Mayonnaise, the owner of Dove, Ben & Jerry's. The list goes on. These are all big household brands. Uh, And it has been branded as an international sponsor of war by the Ukrainian government. The company was accused by Ukrainian veterans of contributing hundreds of millions in tax revenues to a state which is killing civilians. Uh, It comes, as, as Unilever said last year, when the war began, that it would review its operations in Russia. However, uh, it has continued to sell food and hygiene products in the country, with executives from Unilever saying earlier this year, exiting is not straightforward. And so these protests come as, as Unilever's new chief executive, Heinz Schumacher, began his first day in office this week. And Unilever is a company that makes a lot of noise about social purpose and ethics. It's known for having this very progressive ethical stance for looking at ways to do business in better ways and it's faced criticism for this from investors a leading fund manager last year who owns a 0.6% stake in the business has accused it of spouting corporate gobbledygook and platitudes around the meaning of Hellman's mayonnaise but it's a battleground 
that the company has shown itself happy to fight on in the past. Uh, however, now a group of veterans and international activists uh, who are part of the Ukraine Solidarity Project on Monday installed a billboard outside of the company's London headquarters showing wounded Ukrainian soldiers uh, and styled it in the fashion of one of the company's Dove adverts. And it came on the same day that Unilever was officially placed on the Ukrainian government's international sponsors of war list. Um, Anna Nolan, who's from the Ukraine Solidarity Project, is quoted as saying that Unilever's comments that it was renewing its position in Russia raised questions on what it would take for them to leave Russia, given the amount of war crimes that we've already been seen being committed. Uh, she said it, and this is me quoting from her, she said, it prides itself on being a leader when it comes to environmental and social responsibility, but it does have a blind spot when it comes to conflict-affected areas and Ukrainians are paying the price for that lack of leadership. Valeria Voschevska, who is a spokesman for the activist group, claimed that by staying in Russia, Unilever was also funding the Wagner Group, which MPs in Britain have urged to be designated a terrorist organisation. Unilever declined to comment, although it pointed towards its previous comments in March when it said it would cease all imports and exports in and out of Russia and would not be profiting from its presence in Russia. Uh, it said it would continue to supply everyday essential food and hygiene products made in the country. It said at the time that this was the best option. It said this was both to avoid the risk of the business ending up in the hands of the Russian state, either directly or indirectly, and to help protect its employees. Um, however, activists have claimed that other international companies have left the country successfully. Um, if you look at McDonald's, for instance, McDonald's last year closed all its restaurants in Russia. It sold the sites to a Russian fast food chain, which rebranded them under a new name. I think that new name translates to tasty and that's it. And the Russian company said that sourcing any products from abroad had been marred by complications and that the disappearance of the Big Mac burger from menus was a big loss. Um, so it's a difficult story and it raises lots of questions about how companies that have done business in the globalised world are dealing with uh, something that has not been seen in a long time, which is a major war in this way. Lovely. Thanks, Daniel. And just whilst you're on, I mean, is there any precedent at all for how businesses should be conducting themselves? There's a changed ethical environment if you like since the last since the second world war and it's such a different global landscape since then is there are there any benchmarks here and if firms are saying well look it might all be different in 10 years 20 years 50 years where do they stand on running a business and potentially staying in the sector for the future vice their demands from shareholders and so on I think it's really, really tricky. Um, I think for a lot of these businesses and for a lot of the people running these big consumer brands, they haven't really had to deal with a situation this dire before. After decades of growing globalization and the feeling that they could do business on a global level, all of a sudden this happens and there's a huge war in a region where lots of money is at stake. And there's also, you mentioned that the pressure to behave ethically, to be seen to have good ethical credentials, to be working on things like sustainability, the adage of putting people before profits gets thrown around a lot. That That's correct. And there's also, due to the speed at which things develop and the speed at which they're reported and digested by the public these days, a, a real impetus for them not just to be seen to be doing the right thing, but to be seen to have decided on it and to be enacting it very, very quickly. 
um, when in fact one of the things that's been common from CEOs on the business of leaving Russia is that it's something that's highly complex. So if we look at Carlsberg, for instance, they announced they wanted to sell their Russian business quite early on. Um, they've only managed to sell it just this month, and they've also said it was highly complex. Um, one of the things some businesses have said is that they don't want to exit too harshly because they want to avoid an intentional bankruptcy, which would see their businesses essentially handed to the Russian state. And as to your second point, um, as for the longer term future, I think a lot of these companies, the really big brands in the long term are not completely writing off Russia. There have been reports of buyback clauses inserted into deals to which would mean that these companies can buy the Russian parts of their businesses back at, at a certain time point. Uh, numerous CEOs have been quoted saying they don't want to write it off completely 10, 20 years from now. So I think there clearly is a hope of returning to Russia if and when the geopolitics allows. One of the other things I think is that getting out of Russia for a lot of especially f big food companies, big restaurant companies, um, isn't as simple as just closing down shops because they may be franchised there. There may be a higher degree of independence if they're run as a franchise. The franchise might be further from the further distance from the big head office. Um, so, so yeah, it's an absolute minefield. Thanks. Yeah, just finally, I was going to ask you about the franchise model. As you say, McDonald's got out early. Is that just because they're able to, and you compare that, contrast it with Carlsberg and all sorts of... You can't just expect these people to, to write off their business, I guess. Uh, is it? Does it come down to that franchise model against others, or are some people dragging their feet and just enjoying the last few months of gross profits and hanging in for as long as they can? <laughs> I think because of the sheer amount of companies and different industries we're talking about, it's hard to say. But one of the reasons why McDonald's was able to leave Russia so quickly, as I understand it, was that most of the restaurants there were owned by the company rather than run as a franchise. When something's run as a franchise, the franchisee um, or the master franchisee who owns the rights in that country, they generally have a much higher degree of independence and are much further away from the big head office. So it's not as simple in those cases as just going in and closing down the stores because of the ownership structure. Thanks, Daniel. Just a quick question from me, if I may. We focus on these famous Western companies and for understandable and important reasons. But do you have a sense of just how vital they are in the grand scheme? Should they be our focus or are there other larger companies which are actually more significant to discuss when measuring a tangible impact on the Russian economy? I think pr primarily um, there's a this is a public image question. It's about big global companies wanting to be able to do the right thing and to be seen to do the right thing. Um, and I imagine the discussions that boards have probably had as and when the war kicked off, have not been easy ones. There hasn't been a clear right thing to do. You know, they've got to think about thousands of employees within the country, for instance. And there are many, many international companies, many of which are not so public-facing, not such big household brands, that have just continued to do business there. So I've actually got some figures from Leave Russia, who are, as you would imagine, a campaign group that want international companies to leave Russia. And they say that 1,381 1, are continue, companies are continuing operations in Russia. Uh, 
158 have paused investments, which is halfway point, while 356 have said they are scaling back. Uh, and if we're talking about huge million, billion pound conglomerates here, like that's a lot of trade that's still going on. And uh, I'm not an expert on the Russian economy, but the, the sense that I've had is that sanctions and company pullouts have not delivered the, the KO that maybe they thought it would. While I was in Ukraine, I managed to speak to a number of volunteers and contacts. In Kyiv, it was a pleasure to meet Edward Matthews, a documentary photographer and trained volunteer flood rescue technician who's found himself taking on a number of roles after volunteering at the beginning of the full-scale invasion. We spoke about his photography and his work dealing with the deadly floods in Kherson. Here's our conversation. So would you start just by introducing yourself? Tell us a little bit about yourself. So my name's Edward Matthews. I'm a British documentary photographer. Most of my work is freelance. I've mostly been spending time with humanitarian aid groups documenting the fantastic work that they've been doing in Ukraine. When did you first come out last year? So my first trip to Poland initially was on the 20th of March 2022. I initially promised my family that I wouldn't set foot into Ukraine and look at me now, over a year later, sat here in Kyiv. Could you tell us a little bit about the work you've been doing over the past year? So the work I've been doing in Ukraine has mostly been photography work, supporting grassroots humanitarian aid teams with photography. I recognised that I had a skill that could be of use to certain people and I, I saw the situation and thought, how can I help, what can I do? It would have been so easy to come over here and pick up a weapon and do something to fight, but I realised that I could fight with a camera. I could tell stories that other people couldn't tell. So I, I identified that the value of my photography work was greater than anything else. And since then, I've supported all sorts of organisations with free photography work and raised their profile at donor events and managed to fundraise a lot more money for these organisations. In your experience of flood rescue and the impacts of flooding, could you just talk a little bit about, professionally, what you saw in Hassan, the type of disaster you're witnessing? You've already talked a bit about like swift water. What does that mean for people who don't know? So swift water is, is fast-flowing water. It moves in various different ways depending on what's under the surface. So flood water is extremely dangerous because you can only see what's on the top. Often there'll be a faster flow under the water. You also have something called an eddy, which creates like a little whirlpool. So as, as you try and come out of water, you get eddies along the bank and they push things back into the flow. They can even push things back upstream, actually. So it's really fascinating to observe, but when you see this kind of thing, running through a village or a city that's horrific flooding is just devastating and what people haven't considered is the sheer amount of unexploded ordnance that was also in this flood water so this was just a whole other beast I don't know of any information online of how to deal with flood rescue with unexploded ordnance in it was something new and I think this will actually be used as a case study for the future to deal with incidents like this because 
it's unprecedented and completely undocumented so we really were in pioneer territory learning as we go along could you tell us a little more about that like how did you learn what decisions did you make what kind of things were you considering so i didn't get my feet wet i i ensured that i was nowhere near the water but i was assisting an organization providing equipment and training to the emergency services so i ensured that we had the correct people coming in to provide more information so i i was more like a point of contact Mm. and an advisor we also got in an underwater eod technician a former british army one and he advised on the dangers of underwater hazards we were informed about a number of other hazards that had been displaced explosive risks that were missing there was a number of russian ammunition deposits that that were that had disappeared in the flood water as well so the real risk to life particularly in the flood water from unexploded ordnance was massive looking forward over the next few weeks months years as well what kind of challenges and issues do you think the region the city is going to face from your experience so in the next few weeks the key things will be decontamination resuming water and gas supply making sure that everything is clean in months i think that the picture of the sheer scale of the unexploded ordinance will become more visible but it'll probably take 20 30 maybe even 50 years to fully make the area safe after this disaster it was something that happened in minutes but it will take years to to recover from it's not really a game to compare different disasters but how would you categorize what happened in her what's happening sorry in her is it one of the biggest disasters europe has seen in the past 10 years 100 years how do we give people a sense of scale of just how important and destructive this is so there was a, a comparison to another dam that was destroyed in ukraine previously which i think you can compare quite closely now the destruction of a dam is considered a war crime due to the the sheer damage that it does not only to the environment but also the the ecosystems in the area it's killed so much wildlife people destroyed properties it was just such an evil act what does the rest of your year look like in terms of your volunteering and your work in ukraine maybe not even year months weeks what are you looking to do so at present as a freelancer the work is so infrequent but I'm dedicated to continuing to support Ukrainian people in Ukraine and in the UK, even further afield. This is something that I'm so passionate about. I don't have much money. I've used all the savings I had. I'm living every day as it comes. My plan for the future is I want to spend more time in Ukraine, just doing what I can to help people. Your collection of skills is really quite fascinating. So photographer, qualified flood rescuer, so you've really been applying all these skills in different directions. My final question is, you've shown me your website of your photos, and what you say is the photo you're most proud of is of a group of soldiers carrying a coffin in, I think you said, Lviv. Could you tell us about that photo? And listeners will obviously put the website in the show notes so you can go and have a look at it yourselves as well. But what's in that photo, and why did you put it top? So, I think the image is so important to me because it depicts the cost of Ukrainian independence Ukraine 
it is a country that wants to be independent and wants to set its own rules and the price of that is bloody and that's been the case historically for a long time but this image just with the depiction of Jesus Christ in the background it's just so beautiful and heartbreaking at the same time when I was taking this image there was an air raid siren on Independence Day and emotions were very high I'm not even afraid to say that I cried it was such an emotional day I've experienced so much in Ukraine and I understand quite a lot how Ukrainian people feel being shelled, experience explosions, witnessing death. The only thing I don't understand is this to be my home. And I just want other people to understand that. And if more people understood the pain and peril of being Ukrainian and living in a country that has been invaded, I think more people would be supportive of humanitarian causes and even military causes as well. And finally, how can people find you and follow your work? So I have a website, www.emrismedia.com. Emris is E-M-R-I-S and then media.com. I also have two Instagram accounts. I've got Emris Media, exactly the same as the website, and edward.snaps, which is my main account for posting Ukraine work. Thank you very much. Let's go to final thoughts. Now, I know Daniel's had to dash back to the to the desk, but um, Francis, any final thoughts, please? Sure. Thanks, Dom. You and David spoke very movingly yesterday following the tragic killing of the author Victoria Amelina in the strike on Krematorsk, along with 12 others. There's nothing I can say that sums it up better than your remark that you can't silence a free person. All you can do is kill them. So I thought I would read something of hers to prove that point true. It's a short poem uh, called Poem About a Crow, and it was published in The Guardian and translated by Ulian Blacker. In a barren springtime field stands a woman dressed in black, crying her sister's names like a bird in the empty sky. She'll cry them all out of herself. The one that flew away too soon, the one that had begged to die, the one that couldn't stop death. The one that has not stopped waiting. The one that has not stopped believing. The one that still grieves in silence. You'll cry them all into the ground, as though sowing the field with pain. And from pain and the names of women, her new sisters will grow from the earth and again will sing joyfully of life. But what about her, the crow? She will stay in this field forever. Because only this cry of hers holds all those swallows in the air. Do you hear how she calls each one by her name? Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first three months for just £1 at www.telegraph.co.uk forward slash Ukraine the latest. Or sign up to Dispatches, our Ukraine newsletter, which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. 
We also have a Ukraine Live blog on our website where you can follow updates as they come in throughout the day, including insights from regular contributors to this podcast. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm London time each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so that you don't miss it. To our listeners on YouTube, please note that due to issues beyond our control, there is sometimes a delay in broadcast and upload. So if you want to hear Ukraine the latest as soon as it's released, do refer to podcast apps. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider following Ukraine the latest on your preferred podcast app. And if you have a moment, leave a review as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing ukrainepod at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. You can also contact us directly on Twitter. You can find our Twitter handles in the description for this episode. As ever, we are especially interested to hear where you are listening from around the world. Ukraine The Latest was today produced by Rachel Porter and Giles Gear. Executive producers are David Knowles and Louisa Wells. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.